Good morning, Oceans Church. How's everybody doing? Anybody excited to be in church on a Sunday morning? Man, it's good to be here. And all of you in person, you're the real Christians here on the Sunday after Thanksgiving. Shook out of your food coma. Did everyone cheat a little bit? Little extra carbs, little extra meals, courses? I just, I, I feel the judgment right now. Orange County is like, we don't cheat. No days off. We're paleo. We're keto. We, enter, we eat between 2.15 and 2.55. Not a minute outside of that window. Uh, but it is so good to be here. Thank you for that incredibly gracious welcome. And uh, I just, I'm excited for this day. Uh, as, as was stated, we are in the midst of leading so many incredible things. God has been so faithful to us. Um, and launched Love Has No Limits South Florida and Miami last month. Over 600 faith communities and nonprofits joined the movement to team tackle the greatest issues facing the city. We do believe the most leveraged investment you could make in transforming America is uniting, activating, and empowering the faith community at scale. There is no institution better positioned to bring thousands of vulnerable children into forever homes, to lift people out of poverty, to, to help uh, release people from addiction, and so many amazing, measurable things already happening there. And um, we'll, you'll be hearing more about it, but we're excited because Angel House is actually expanding into three more nations right now. And we'll be rescuing children out of Sri Lanka, Bangladesh, and Nepal, in addition to the work in India. So really, really amazing things happening. And I'm just so excited to be home. No long flight, no TSA, no check bags, just a beautiful scenic drive here to Irvine under the tents. It's good to be home at Ocean's Church. And before we go any further, I just want to honor, appreciate, and acknowledge the remarkable leadership at this church. They're dedicated, they're diligent, and they're fearless and courageous leaders. Can we give it up for Pastor Mark and Rochelle and the entire staff that serves so well? Thank you, Pastor Mark and Rochelle. You guys are absolutely uncommon, remarkable leaders. Did you come hungry for God's word this morning? We're going to begin in 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. 1 Samuel chapter 30, verse 1. Three days later, when David and his men arrived home at their town of Ziglag, they found the Amalekites had made a raid into the Negev and Ziglag. They'd crushed Ziglag and burned it to the ground. They had carried off the women and children and everyone else without killing anyone. When David and his men saw the ruins and realized what had happened to their families, they wept until they could weep no more. David was now in great danger because all his men were very bitter about losing their sons and daughters. And they began to talk of stoning him. But David found his strength in the Lord his God. Continuing all the way to verse 17, David and his men rushed back in among them and slaughtered them throughout the night and the entire next day until evening. None of the Amalekites were able to escape except 400 young men. Verse 18, David got back everything the Amalekites had taken. Nothing was missing. Smaller, great son or daughter, nor anything else that had, be had been taken. David brought everything back. Let's pray. Father, we thank you so much that no eye has seen, no ear has heard. It's not even entered into the heart of humanity. What you have in store for us who love you. Spirit of God, we continue to welcome you 
in these tents, into the homes and places where everybody's watching this service. Everything that's in your heart, Lord, let it be accomplished in this place. In Jesus' name, and everybody shouted. Amen and amen. I have a picture coming up on the screens of a ceramic, and it's unique because the picture you're viewing right now was, is an image of a, of a ceramic piece of pottery that was once shattered into dozens of pieces. But for the past six centuries, the Japanese have practiced an ancient art form called the art of repair, or kintsugi, where they literally take broken shattered ceramics and they restore and rebuild it using gold and the end result is the piece of art or the ceramic is worth far more than its original value and I think it's a appropriate illustration for oftentimes the work God does in our lives when we've gone through severe and sometimes crushing seasons it actually sets the stage for God, the master artisan, to recraft and repurpose every area of our life, even areas of shame or hurt that might appear completely unredeemable. When God steps in, we're restored completely. As long as we're living and breathing on this planet, we're never going to be immune to suffering, adversity, unforeseen difficulty, stress, hardship, unfair treatment. But this morning, I wanted to remind us that we serve a God who sees all things, who knows all things, and what I want to submit to you today restores all things. The title of our talk this morning is Everything Restored. Can you say that with me? Everything Restored. One more time. Everything Restored. My goal this morning is that you would leave with a renewed personal revelation of the biblical truths about restoration. See, our spiritual enemy would have us to believe after seasons of hardship and loss that our best days are behind us and things will simply never be the same. But there is biblical precedent that we serve a God who actually works all things together for our good. In Romans chapter 8, verse 28, Paul the Apostle states clearly, and we know, and we know, he says, and we absolutely know that God makes all things work together for the good of those who love God. How many people love God this morning and are called according to his purpose? In our opening text, we're rushed into a dramatic scene. It's really inconceivable where David, a human, a father, a leader, a man, undergoes unimaginable stress. As he returns home, he finds the community he established in ruins, wealth plundered, wives, children, and families taken, and quite literally the city burned to the ground. Doubling down on the traumas, he tries to process this unimaginable loss. His men begin to blame him for what has transpired. And they conspire to kill him by stoning. And it's in these critical moments David has a decision to make. Will he begin to shake his fist at God? Will he curse God? Will he try to figure out why? 
Will he run? Will he quit? Will he retreat? Will he give up? Or will he run into the safe arms of the Father? And the scripture says, rather than ask why, he runs to the Father and he begins to encourage himself and anchors himself instead in the supremacy and sovereignty of God that sits above all of the circumstances he's standing in. And there in that delicate, vulnerable moment of prayer, God begins to give him enough grace, enough grace to get a strategy, enough grace to muster up the courage to rally his men and to go back to that place. And the scripture records, restore everything back so that nothing is missing. And I believe this morning that God is a God who wants to give us a revelation of his ability to restore and redeem everything in our life. This morning, I'm going to minister this to your spirit. You might be in a little Thanksgiving coma still. You just sit back because this thing's coming to your spirit. In 1 Peter chapter 5, verse 10, it says, In the God of all grace, who called you to his eternal glory in Christ, after you have suffered a little while, there's some that might be in a season of suffering, adversity, trial, hardship, unjust treatment. Let me encourage you, it's most likely just going to be a little while. Then look what happens. God himself will personally restore you and make you strong, firm, and steadfast. I want you to internalize this truth this morning that when you're going through suffering, after a little while, your father God steps in. And he himself has the ability to restore you and make you strong, make you firm, make you steadfast. So that I believe the end is even greater than the beginning. Earlier this year, our, I really felt the enemy launched an aggressive assault against, against our lives, against some of the ministries and organizations we steward. And in so many ways, I believe it was an attempt to, to stop us. Thankfully, it wasn't anyone on our staff or leadership team, but there were some bad actors who leveraged, manipulated, and ultimately were causing us great pain and hardship. And it was difficult. It was so difficult that um, it shook me to my core. And in the heart and the heat of it all, the Lord gave me a word called the vanguard. And some of you remember from June when we preached about the vanguard. And that was a sustaining word that God gave us in the height of it all. For many more months, we stood in it. But here in November, 2023, my testimony is, after we've suffered a little while, God himself restores us and makes us strong, firm, and steadfast. He actually elevates us. He makes us stand in greater authority after we've suffered. Like that restored ceramic, we actually become, after a temporary season of brokenness, more valuable. And you might feel broken this morning, but let me tell you this morning, you're not going to stay broken. This point is, is illustrated perhaps no better than in the story of Joseph. I want you to think about this journey. The Bible actually dedicates a massive section of scripture to his journey. Joseph, the dreamer, Joseph, the visionary, gets a, a glimpse of his future and tells his brothers they're overcome with envy and they capture him. 
and they throw him and leave him for dead in the bottom of a dry cistern, a well. Joseph sitting there trying to process why his own flesh and blood, his ride or die, his community, the people that he's supposed to lean into for strength and security, those people perpetrate such injustice and evil against him. And he's sitting at the bottom of this pit having to process that reality. Hours pass and the men, brothers, begin to think, you know, we, we probably shouldn't have just killed him. We could have made money off him. And they begin to pull him out. Maybe at this point there's hope in Joseph's heart that they're coming to rescue him. They've come to their senses. But instead they double down and they sell him into slavery. Now Joseph's working in Potiphar's house, and you probably know the story, he excels, the grace on his life, the gift on his life, elevates him quickly. He becomes trusted in Potiphar's home, and soon Potiphar's wife frames him, wrongfully accuses him, cries rape when he did no, nothing wrong. And now Joseph, after having done nothing, is suffering another gross injustice and is sentenced to an Egyptian jail cell. Standing in the dungeon further from his vision than he could have ever dreamed, trying to make sense of it all. His grace and the gift on his life begins to operate. He begins to interpret dreams of some of the jail cell members. News reaches Pharaoh's house, the most powerful ruler in the known world, and they call Joseph to come and interpret the Pharaoh's dreams. The, the Pharaoh's blown away, gives him the second seat of authority in all of Egypt. Famine hits the entire land. Joseph's family is literally desperate, and they journey all the way back to Egypt to get food to survive. Joseph hears about it and arranges to meet them. Now, I want you to imagine the moment as Joseph's about to go eyeball to eyeball with the very men who left him for dead and eventually sell him years later. And in that vulnerable moment, he has the spiritual and emotional maturity to look them in the eyes and say, in Genesis 50, 20, you intended to harm me, but God intended it for good to accomplish what is now being done, the saving of many lives. Could you imagine if Joseph tried to achieve this place of leadership on his own? Maybe he just tried to process, well, I know that God's going to make me a ruler. Maybe I'll, like, I'll, I'll, I'll come on staff for Pharaoh, be an EA for Pharaoh. He could have taken a literal 100-year journey and never found himself in this place. But in 13 years, he's second in command. God actually repurposes the evil. See, I don't believe God orchestrates evil. But what I do believe is God can take legitimate evil and injustice and actually cause it to become an asset for us. God can actually repurpose when people in this fallen world act contrary to even God's heart and God's intentions. God could take even the worst things you've ever walked through and bring a thread of redemption through all of it. Somebody say everything restored. Tell your neighbor, say everything restored. This is our God. And I want to continue to build the case for you because whether we like it or not, the enemy is working around the clock to, to break and to steal. Of all the things Jesus could have referred to Satan as, as in name, he actually calls him the thief. 
and John 10 10 he said the thief is coming to kill steal and destroy because he's always trying to steal from us trying to steal our influence trying to steal our relationship with God and undermine it trying to steal our life-giving relationships with people I think one of the great tragedies is when Christians who are supposed to love each other and walk together allow offense and division to come in that place you're supposed to great get life-giving help from and hope from sometimes the enemy breaks those life-giving relationships I've seen it over and over again and people are constantly cycling through friends I like what my friend Jedediah said he says the enemy's job is not to get you to believe a lie about somebody it's to get you to doubt the truth about them you might not ever believe the lie but if he could just sow a subtle seed of doubt so you begin to wonder what what is that person's intention and what did they mean by that why did they say that and rather than get hurt I'll just I'll protect my vulnerability and I'll actually isolate and all of a sudden all these things these relationships that God wanted to bring into your life to be community to be strength we start to break away from or, or we or we leave a church or we leave a, a faith community because because we begin to question the truth but if we begin to see what's at stake what we we'll really realize is people are never our enemy the, it's this, our spiritual enemy he's working against us and we have to remember to love unconditionally and forgive unconditionally I believe God wants to restore us practically I believe God wants to restore us relationally you know restoration is even embedded into nature it's the fall time the leaves begin to die new leaves it prepares the way for new new leaves to come that regenerative process that restoration process is built into nature see restoration is not just something that God does it's actually an aspect of who he is we are actually living in a, a grander restoration narrative as humanity because the moment Adam sinned God said let's kick the plan into place we're going to restore mankind to ourselves. and one day Christ is going to return and all things will be restored death and sickness and pain and 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 evil will be eliminated for all of time God is a God of restoration someone say everything everything restored I believe God wants to restore every area of our life I believe there are people here today that you'll be like the psalmist in Psalm 23 I was able to say the Lord is my shepherd I shall not want he makes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters for those with sleepless nights he makes me to lie down in green pastures he leads me beside still waters verse 3 David the psalmist in so much crisis if you know his journey was able to say he restores even my soul God wants to restore us practically but I believe he also wants to restore our soul our mind our emotions our I believe in psychology I believe sometimes in in medicine where God could heal our souls indirectly through those tools but I also believe that in the presence of the Holy Spirit sometimes God just says I'm gonna heal you directly I'm gonna allow the healing virtue of my presence cause decades of pain to go in a moment 
vulnerable places, hidden places, places you just act like don't exist but have never dealt with, those real hurts and places of shame and, and, and even tragedy and trauma, I believe the Holy Spirit in his presence can heal that as well. The testimony of many in this place, and I believe many more will be, he restores even my soul. Wouldn't it be amazing to get your joy back? Wouldn't it be amazing to get your peace back? Wouldn't it be amazing to drive in your car and not be depressed and filled with anxiety and not be wondering and, 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 and worrying and not be constantly wondering if you're going to make it through to the other side? See, here's what's so amazing when you get a revelation on the God of restoration. It actually eliminates the, the human equation. But, but, but what, if, what if my boss does that? What if he does? God sits above it in all supremacy. Oh, what if, what if my coworker, what, what if they do? What if my spouse, what if my friend, what if my, my, my mom, what if, my, what if they do? God's actually sitting above all human activity, causing all things to work together for the good of us who love God and are called according to his purpose. I don't have to sit in fear I don't have to be riddled with anxiety based on what man, maybe we'll be able to say like David, the Lord is my rock and my fortress. What shall man do unto me? It actually eliminates the fear of man. It eliminates the possibilities. Any moms uh, let your minds run wild on the possibilities of what could happen to your kids or what could happen at school or what could, but what if we can just put our faith and hope in the God? who's watching over them, the God who's keeping them. I believe that he wants to restore our souls. Listen to this word from Zechariah in Zechariah 9. Because of the covenant I made with you, sealed with blood, I will free you prisoners from death in a waterless dungeon. This waterless dungeon speaks to where prisoners in ancient times were often kept in dry wells. This is actually also an allusion to Joseph's story when he was in the pit. And the prophet says, my, my, my people Israel, because of my covenant, I'll free you. Now look at verse 12. Come back to the place of safety, all you prisoners who have hope. One translation says, you prisoners of hope. I promise you this very day that I will repay you. Two blessings for each of your trouble. God says to the exiles of Egypt in this dry well, I'm going to free you because of my unbreakable covenant with you. And now you'll be called prisoners of hope, entitled to a double blessing. You know, in biblical law, there was a mandate. You could read about it in Exodus 22, 4, 7, and 9, that double restitution was always commanded for victims of, of wrongdoing. And the prophet pulls on that mandate and says, Oh, Israel, I know you're in exile. I know you've been in pain. I know you've been in, in, in trial. But I am going to restore unto you double. In your heart this morning, I want you to begin to get a vision of everything restored. I want you to get a vision of God reaching into every part of your story every part of your world, every aspect of your life, family, professional, 
your own soul, every aspect of your life. I want you to get a vision of a very big God who loves you very individually and wants to step in and bring total and complete restoration. Somebody shout everything, 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 everything restored. Isaiah 61, this is one of the most famous prophecies of Scripture. Jesus himself preaches this text in Luke 4. The Spirit of the Sovereign Lord is upon me because the Lord's anointed me to proclaim good news to the poor. He sent me to bind up the brokenhearted. Listen to the restoration narrative and language. To proclaim freedom for the captives, the release from darkness to the prisoners. To proclaim the year of the Lord's favor and the day of vengeance of our God. To comfort all who mourn to provide for those who grieve in Zion, to give them a crown of beauty instead of ashes, an oil of joy. Some have, some have been wondering, will I ever smile again? Will I ever be happy again? Will I ever be at peace again? Yes. I want to say to you categorically, yes. You're going to get the oil of joy for mourning, the garment of praise instead of a spirit of despair. That's your future. You'll be called oaks of righteousness, a planting of the Lord for the day of the, his splendor. And you will be called the priests of the Lord. You will be named ministers of our God. You will feed on the wealth of nations and in the riches you will boast. I just felt to say vulnerably this morning, even this summer I thought, Lord, will it ever be fun again? Will I ever enjoy my calling again? Will it never not be war and not be battle and not be difficult I'm here to tell you, he gave me the oil of joy instead of mourning, the garment of praise instead of despair. Verse 6, you'll be called priests of the Lord. You'll be named ministers of our God. You'll feed on the wealth of nations and in their riches you will boast. Verse 7, instead of your shame, check this out, you will receive a double portion. Just for fun, say double portion. Instead of disgrace, you'll rejoice in your inheritance, and you'll inherit into a double portion of the land. Some good Old Testament stuff. But what about the New Testament? Well, James talks about it too. James says, remember Job. No one had it worse than Job. Job lost everything and some. James says, but don't forget about Job, encouraging the church of the New Testament. He says, don't forget about Job. In James 5.11, a man who endured great suffering. For instance, you know about Job, a man of great endurance. You can see how the Lord was kind to him in the end. For the Lord is full of tenderness and mercy. The Lord's looking over your situation with tenderness and mercy. He's looking over your situation with tenderness and mercy. How did the Lord, how was the Lord kind to Job? The Lord said, the scripture says in Job 42.10, and the Lord restored the fortunes of Job when he prayed for his friends. And the Lord gave Job twice as much as before. Just, just for fun, say twice as much. One more time, just for fun, twice as much. You see in the pattern of double. Do you know Job got everything back he lost 2x? With the exception of his kids, he got one, he lost all his kids, they all died, but he got a brand new set of kids because the Lord knew he would have his kids for eternity in heaven. Every single aspect of his, of his life, of Job's life, after he suffered a little while, everything was restored. Are you saying that God's going to give me double? 
Is it a promise? I'm not saying it's a promise, but I'm what I am saying today is it's a precedent. It's a biblical precedent. It is a discernible pattern for God. And if God can do it for Job, and if God could do it for Israel, and if God could do it for Joseph, I'm going to pray with authority that God would do it in my life, and God would do it in your life, and God would do it in our church, and God would do it for our families, and your ministry, and your leadership. Lord, I thank you that you're restoring double. I thank you that you're restoring more. I thank you that everything that's been broken, everything that's been taken, everything the thief thought he had claimed to is being restored in Jesus' name. Somebody say, everything restored. Just lift your hands real quick. Father, I thank you even now. You begin to give us vision for everything restored. Lord, give us, let us see it in our, in our heart. Give us a vision for it. Let us see a practical, clear picture of what it looks like when Father God steps in and begins to rearrange and reorchestrate and realign and readjust the scales and justice comes and mercy comes and your tenderness comes and your favor comes and your healing comes and your reconciliation comes where there's been broken relationships. Spirit of God, I thank you. Draw a picture on our hearts. You watching at home, he's going to begin to show you a picture. You're going to be a prisoner with hope where you're going to see where he's taking you. One more story. In the book of 2 Kings, there's a narrative of a woman from the town of Shunem, the Shunemite woman. A wealthy woman lives there. Whenever the prophet would come to her for a meal, he would stop by for something to eat. So she said to her husband, I'm sure this man who stops in from time to time is a holy man of God. Let's build a room for him and furnish it with a bed, a table, a chair, and a lamp. Then he'll have a place to stay whenever he comes by. I'm not going to take a long time detailing the story, but this is a wealthy woman called the Shunammite woman, or, or it's like saying the Parisian woman from Paris. She recognizes who Elisha is over time and says, we've got to create space in our home for the prophet to stay. And over time, eventually Elisha says, do you have anything you have need of? You've ministered to me so practically and, and with this hospitality. And she says, well, I, I am barren. My husband's elderly and we've never had a child. And the prophet says, by this time next year, you'll have a child. And she actually snaps back at him and says, don't get my hopes up. Don't say it. And he doubles down and says, in one year's time, you'll be holding your child. And in 12 months, she did receive the miracle child. But years pass, seven, eight years pass, we don't know. It says, as the boy began to grow, one day he's walking with his father. He begins to complain. His head is hurting. And he collapses and actually dies. Shunammite woman was smart. She immediately sends for Elisha. Elisha tells Gehazi, here's my cloak. Take it and throw it on the child. The Shunammite woman says, no, he's got to come himself. So they take the body of their dead child and place it actually on the bed where Elisha would sleep in their home. Recognizing that was the place they'd made room for God's presence. And Elisha comes and dramatically we read he actually lays on the boy and begins to breathe the breath of life 
and he's restored to life. It's a miracle story. And yet seven years later, a lesser known story, this woman finds herself in desperate need again. We read in 2 Kings 8, 1, that Elisha spoke to the woman whose son had been restored to life, saying, Arise and go, you and your household, and stay wherever you can, for the Lord's called for a famine, and it will come upon the land for seven years. So Elisha warns the woman a famine is coming. So she actually leaves her household and her land, did according to the saying of the man of God, and she dwelt in the land of the Philistines for seven years. And it came to pass at the end of the seven years that the woman returned from the land of the Philistines. And when she went to make an appeal for the, to the king for her house and for, for her land. So when she returns to her land, there's actually squatters living in her home and on her land. Everything she'd built, everything she'd worked for in the period of that famine had been overtaken. And so she begins to talk to the king and basically asks for justice. And it's an amazing moment because at the very moment she asks for her land to be restored to her, Gehazi is conversing with the king, the prophet of Elisha. Gehazi is conversing with the king. The king's like, tell me stories about Elisha. And Elisha, he just starts to riddle off all these amazing stories of life on the road with Elisha, breaking open the Jordan River with the cloak, and Naaman the leper being healed. He's walking through all these stories. But when it comes time to talk about a woman who had her child restored to life again, he begins to tell that story. And at that very moment, this woman walks up. Check it out. Then the king talked with Gehazi, the servant of the man of God, saying, Tell me, please, all the great things Elisha has done. Now it happened, as he was telling the king how he had restored the dead to life, that there was the woman whose son he had restored to life, appealing to the king for her house and for her land. And Gehazi said, My lord, O king, this is the woman I've been talking to you about. And this is actually her son, the miracle son, twice, whom Elisha restored to life. And when the king asked the woman, she told him. So the king appointed a certain officer saying, check this out. Restore all that was hers. Watch this. And all the proceeds of the field from the day she left the land until now. You know why it's possible, why it's powerful? Because she didn't just get back what was taken. But she got, she got the fruit of the time back. And I actually believe some of us have stepped, had seasons of hardship and loss where it looks like there was so much lost time. And yet, in God's restoration capacity, he, he makes up the time. And some. He actually steps in and has the ability to restore what was lost, maybe even when we were fools. Not all of our trials are the result of an external force. Sometimes we got addicted, and sometimes we didn't love wisdom, and sometimes we rebelled against our parents, and sometimes we rejected staying in the local church, and sometimes we didn't live according to the word we knew to live. And even in our own mistakes, the grace and sovereignty and beautiful restoration nature of God can come in and restore the time. He actually can do it. I, I'm telling you, he does it. 
This is what he does. He restores the time and he restores what was lost. This is not just what he does. This is who he is. your heads with me for a moment if you're in church this morning even you watching bow your heads watching this morning you say man Dom I, your area is I need rec restoration maybe it's reconciliation of relationship maybe it's restoration professionally and financially. Maybe it's restoration of health. Maybe it's restoration of your soul, of your peace, of your joy. Maybe it's restoration of your innocence. Maybe it's restoration in the deepest parts of your soul. Maybe it's, it's, it's practical. Wherever it is, if, if you say, I want to I stand today in faith for everything restored. When I count to three in a moment, I just want us to almost like a, an act of our faith stand as we're, and we're standing in faith, giving divine permission and authorization for the Holy Spirit to step in. Nothing superstitious about the stand, but, but a symbol posture of our heart and the receptivity of our heart for God the restorer. One, two, three. Let's stand together.
we're going to pray in a moment. I just want to say a word to people who might be new to faith. And maybe you've actually never made a faith commitment, made a personal decision to follow Christ or have him be your Lord, your Savior. The scripture says the kindness of the Lord leads us to repentance. Before you even say yes to Jesus, I believe for some of you, he's already going to start to restore you. He actually wants to show you who he is. And whether this is your first time in church or your first time in a long time or if you've been walking with Christ your entire life, I'm inviting you this morning to experience a dimension of God, an expression of who he is, of him being our father, our shepherd, our protector, our defender, and ultimately the restorer of our life. Would you put one hand on your heart, lift one hand to heaven for a moment. I just want you to pray with me. Jesus. Believing as we pray this prayer, the Spirit of God, God's Holy Spirit begins to restore emotionally, begins to crystallize that vision. And I believe some of us begin to get of everything restored. That we would leave permanently etched into our soul, our spirit, what God wants to do. Pray this with me. Say, Holy Spirit, I thank you that you're here working in my heart, working in my soul, restoring, repairing, renewing. I receive the vision of where you're taking me, who you're making me. And I declare everything restored in Jesus' name. Now lift your hands, both of your hands. I want to pray over you. Father, in the name of Jesus, I just thank you for every assignment of the enemy to rob us through addiction or unjust treatment or unforgiveness or pain or distraction or family members or all the areas the enemy might have an access point. I thank you today that that access point is closed off. I thank you today, Lord, that we sit, we sit under the weight and reality of your ability to restore us and to make us whole and to set us on firm foundations. I thank you that some might be in that moment that David was in where we could run from God or run to God. Lord, we, we choose to strengthen ourselves in the Lord this morning. We choose to run into the safe, reliable arms of our Heavenly Father. We choose to trust your sovereignty and your supremacy above all things. Lord, I thank you that we are resolved in our spirit, in our minds, from this day forward, we're running to you, not from you. We're trusting in you, not questioning you. We're, we're, you're a safe, reliable, trustworthy Father, and we choose to trust you regardless of what we see. We choose to trust you regardless of what's coming against us. We choose to trust you. Let's sing it one more time.
Bible says make a joyful noise unto the Lord. Shout unto God with the voice of triumph. For a moment, can we just thank God for who he is? Can we just praise God for who he is? Can we just celebrate the one who loves us, the one who's there for us? We love you, Lord. We praise you, Lord. We thank you, Lord. We rejoice in you, Lord. We put on the garment of praise for the spirit of heaviness, the garment of praise for a spirit of despair. Why don't you just thank him for 30 seconds? Why don't you just praise him in advance? Why don't you just celebrate his goodness this morning, church? this morning we would not want to close the service without giving people who might be far from God or have never made a decision to receive the free gift of forgiveness of sin to make a decision to follow Jesus today and the ultimate act of restoration Christ the Bible said who knew no sin became sin he took our wrong choices our foolishness our wrongdoings upon himself and was crucified to a cross, bearing the weight for the penalty of our sin so that we could be forever forgiven, so that we can be brought back into right relationship with God. We can't earn through good works our salvation. The Bible says it's the gift of God lest anyone could boast. But the, the distinguishing factor is we have to receive it. We have to make it personal, it has to be ours. We can't get to heaven on our parents' faith. We can't get our sins forgiven on our friends' faith. It's gotta be our personal decision to say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me. I receive your forgiveness. In exchange, I give you leadership of my life. And there is no way to live this life to the full without fully giving everything to Jesus Christ. So with every head bowed and every eye closed for a moment, if you came to church and you're not right with God and you know it, he's not your Lord, he's not your savior. And you say, man, I wanna repent, I wanna turn. I'm walking back to Christ or I'm coming to Christ for the first time. Just lift your head up and put it back down. If that's you, I wanna pray with people. You say, that's me, pray, pray with me, Dominic, that's me. God bless you. God bless you. Many people, that's me. I need him to be full Lord, floor saver. Many people. Church, can you pray this prayer with those who are making a decision this morning? Just say this after me. Say, Lord Jesus, thank you for dying for me, for paying the price for my sin. I invite you into my life. I receive your forgiveness, and I declare your lordship from this day forward. My life is yours. Be my savior. In Jesus' name, amen and amen. Let's celebrate this morning, church.